Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Knife Talk is sponsored by Evenheat, the manufacturer of the finest heat treating ovens available. To find your next heat treat oven, go to evenheat-kiln.com. Once again, thank you, Even Heat, for sponsoring us. You've re-upped with us, and it's been great, and our listeners have been fantastic. If you are looking for one of their ovens, look into the LB series. There's no coils in the back, so if you have something on the longer side, you won't worry about burning the tip. It's a, That's my little pro tip for today. So, Even Heat, thank you very much. Welcome to Knife Talk. It's a podcast for knife makers, knife enthusiasts, all he is. I'm Jeff Fader from Fader Knives. With me is Mareko Momasi, Momasi Fire Arts, and no Craig today. No Craig today. You know why? Because who knows what the hell he's doing with who knows where and who knows what. We got a big surprise. I'm super pumped because we called in the uh, the big dogs in in our bullpen, and we got a we got an incredible incredible guest. Our guest today is Joshua Prince of Prince Works Forge. No Prince Forge Works. Prince, Prince Works Forge. Per, Prince Works Forge. Sorry, Joshua. <laughs> Joshua is one of these guys. He's a, a knife maker who has transcended the technique to create his own style that sets himself apart. And I'm so thrilled to be here. That you're here, Josh. How are you? Oh, man. I love the energy. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, after that buildup, boy, <laughs> I, lot, I might have a lot of talking to do, but I really appreciate um, I love being on the show. I love listening to you guys. I'm sure my neighbors think I'm crazy because they probably see me in my workshop with the door open, like pressing metal and laughing like a maniac at, at all <laughs> the crazy stuff you guys talk about. So I'm, I'm just I'm just really pleased to be on, on with you guys and uh, look forward to, to having a great talk. Uh, I'm really here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here too. You know, to my first introduction to you, I, I think was you actually commenting on posts and stuff like that, and started sending me pictures, and we started chatting <laughs> back and forth, and then you actually took. I think it. I think it's the only class I've ever taught, especially about Damascus. And first class. First and only yeah. class. Yeah, first class. And uh, you came down from Rhode Island, and you hung out with a few other guys, and we. I think. You know, we had a good time, and and uh, but it was really great to uh, to meet you. And I I agree with Jeff. Uh, you the the way the, the way you use your creativity to definitely think outside of the box. Some of the stuff you've done, uh, 
uh, with Damascus. I know I've definitely never seen before. Um, and we'll probably get into it later. For yeah. sure. Oh, for sure. You. Because, you know, that's that's what you're great at. Um, but, yeah, I'm really excited to have you here, too. Thanks a lot, guys. One thing that I'm furious about is the fact that I just listened to Toby Knife and Steel's pod, uh, interview of you, of, with you. And it's fantastic. And if you haven't listened to it, by all means do. I don't like to plug other podcasts because I find that, you know, I don't in general. But his interview with you is was so great. And, and I just wanted to, and I got mad listening to it. Because <laughs> I, I, I learned so much about you before. I mean, we've been talking. Actually, you and I first met when we were at the Blade Show two That's years right. ago, last year, two years ago. I think it was yeah. last year, yeah. And um, I'm fascinated by the fact that you're very new to making knives and bladesmithing. Absolutely, yeah. Since just as, uh, I'd say 2016, probably summer, I started. Um, and it's a whole series of events that led me to that. Uh, but I'm, yeah, I'm relatively new to bladesmithing, too. I'm, I'm relatively new to, to uh, metalworking of any kind. Wow. In fact, I was, uh, I've been a woodworker my entire life, um, both professionally as a, and as a hobby woodworker. It's always been kind of my my backup job. If you know, in between jobs, I would you know I knew I could make money as a woodworker, so I would I would always default to that. So that's the majority of my experience. Um, some of it was fine uh, fine you know fine furniture woodworking, and then some of it was architectural millwork. But I you know a lot of those techniques and um, sort of the sculptural sculptural aspects of furniture lend themselves, I think, very well to. To, to certain aspects of knife making and just comfortable, you know, being comfortable with machinery, right. um, being able to get onto a new machine, have somebody show you, here's how it works, you know, two, one, two, step one, two, three, and being able to step up to that machine and have reasonable success uh, without the whole learning curve that typically comes with being intimidated by something. Right. Mm. Well, that's the, the confidence of confidence in, in, in that allows you to go a little proceed faster when you have more confidence in the material. Uh, in, the, in the tools and stuff. So, so what's interesting to me is when I look at your work, and I've seen a lot of your work, and you, you know, there's a lot of animalistic things and airplanes and and legs with you know high heel. <laughs> there's a stylistic. There's a there's a. I, I, I honestly and, I, and I've made this comment in regards to you know whether or not knife makers or artists or, or what. When I look at the work that you do, whether whatever it is. There's a stylistic quality to it that you're that you're kind of transcending the actual technique, and then you're actually I can see how you're you're when you're thinking about these designs, you're asking the questions that sculptors ask themselves when they're making their work. They're trying to address an issue, and then they're trying to uh, flesh it out without regard with regard without. Um, without the trappings of what other people are doing. Hmm. And I, I just, I'm interested in the fact that you're able to do that. I definitely have a, I would say I have a wild side, which is, um, you know, I, I look I look at a lot of people's work, you know, as we all do on Instagram, but also I'm relatively new. So I think the newness brings a certain ability for me to not be bound to, to, to rules, I guess. Um, and I got a piece of advice from, from somebody that's, uh, you know, pretty prominent in the knife knife making business, and he said, "Listen to no one." <laughs> you know, Is that Steve I, Schwartzer. No, it was actually Nick Anger, and it was just a it was just a casual conversation, and we were in, in Instagram chat, we were back and forth, and it kind of reinforced what I already felt about um, 
about what I was doing is because a lot of doubt creeps in when, you know, when you're doing something that's a little unorthodox, a little bit unusual. You start to think, well, is this going to be accepted? Does this make sense? You know, does it make sense to put a high-heeled boot on the back of a knife? You know, does it make sense to to make a, a you know a, a pair of blades that are themed off of World War II aircraft? You know, maybe it doesn't make sense, but I did it anyways, and I really enjoyed the process. And for me, that's you know at this point. In, in my making, that's that's where I'm at. So really just enjoying and being inspired by the idea. That's usually what carries me with, with most of what I'm doing is just the concept, the excitement about the idea, um, or the pattern. It, it doesn't have to be the overall concept. It could be the pattern. It could even be the, the handle material could inspire uh, an entire build. You know, building a knife around a handle, um, a certain type of handle material that has a certain pattern, or or the, the interplay between the you know the handle and the blade, all those things I think are, we can all relate to as we're making our choices in, in pursuing the thing that we're trying to achieve. For sure, I hope uh, I didn't you know I, too much. No, you're good. No. I, what what I think is great you just mentioned is is talking about the the interplay between the handle material and the the especially the Damascus patterns. Um, you know I think. Um, sometimes you you just slap uh, a handle scales or or a block onto a knife and you call it good but being able to manipulate the material and create a pattern that reflects what's happening in the handle uh, in the handle material or vice versa trying to select handle material that reflects what's happening in the handle I think that's that's a really uh, it's uh, it's hard to achieve uh, but it's a really cool when you can achieve it. It's really cool to really. I think it's awesome to see that that those lines and the patterns uh, from one flow into the other uh, almost yeah. seamlessly, and to and to see that relationship or see how it's like almost like an evolution of the pattern in a way. Absolutely, absolutely. I didn't want to glaze over your comment about Steve Schwartz. Steve Schwartz is the best. I mean, you had him on 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 your show and he uh, on the show and he talked. He, he was kind enough to mention my name, but Steve, Steve has been incredibly encouraging um, to me in my journey as well, and just kind of like giving me that appreciation of what I'm doing and validation, so it's given me a lot of strength to, to move forward, along with, you know, the community in general has been really good, and I know, I know some of the things I do are a little unusual, and I just really, to get that support and it is really gives me a lot of validation, it keeps, keeps, feels the fire, you know, so to speak. Unusual isn't the right word. And, and, and I think that I think that I, I I'll tell you that I am envious of you in general because you've decided to make what you want to make and, and that there's there's a I don't know what the right expression is but when I was younger before I started making railings at a blacksmith shop before I was a blacksmith shop I had to make a railing and I had never made a railing before and I just made a railing and it was the most unorthodox railing because I had no previous, you know, influences. I had no previous real ideas. And it was like, it's, when I started to work as a blacksmith, I started to notice, ah, this, that's, this thing is, you know, it's, it's, this isn't right, that isn't right. But now that I'm off it for a while, I, I, I'm resentful of the fact that I wish I, was, I had no other prior influences mm-hmm. to make my decisions. And I think that when you look at your work, the profiles, the patterns, uh, uh, stylistic decisions. There's there's a beauty to the uh, be, the beauty to your work that's so far different from everybody else's 
that when I see a knife, that your knife, without knowing that your name is on it, it's a clearly Joshua Prince's knife. I mean, you've set yourself apart in a very, uh, I don't even, I don't think unorthodox is, is a knife, is a nice enough term for what you've done. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, I, I always worry, I always worry, am I going to run out of ideas, you know, like, am I going to run out of things to do or ways to do something different and new? And um, that's like my biggest fear. But uh, somehow, I, you know, somebody says something or I read something or uh, I read a, uh, you know, read a, I'm working on something right now, for example, that was inspired by a sort of a haiku that somebody just wrote on a post. And it kind of said, oh, that's interesting. You know, maybe I could turn that into a pattern somehow. So that's, that's what it takes, you know. It's just that next inspiration for me. And I, yeah. I will say, I'm, I mean, I'm in a somewhat unique position in this that I'm not a full-time maker. Right. And it's not my only source of income. It's an important source for me. It's an, you know, it's an important part of my life because making has always been part of my life since I was a child. It's, it's what keeps me sane. Like, you don't want to see me not have a project. That's not a good thing. You know, when my wife sees me just kind of sitting at the kitchen table, like, looking around, she's like, what? You don't have anything to work on? <laughs> it's usually because I'm in between uh, projects or I'm in between hobbies, if you will. So I've always got something to work on. And that, that's really an important part. But uh, uh, what I was getting at is um, I'm not depending on it for my main source of income. So I have a full-time job, and then I have the knife making that I do with the rest of my time. Which well, is, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry for interrupting. No, it's, which is pretty intense, but it isn't. Uh, so that gives me the freedom to kind of uh, do what I want. There's also, you know, if, when you balance that, though, uh, with having customers, because of you know, purpose of a business, I guess, is to have customers and to make customers. Uh, I often find myself pursuing a lot of passion projects uh, and not finishing them, which is, you know, the, the downside of that, of not having a customer waiting for it, is having, you know, getting going down a path of exploration and maybe becoming dissatisfied with it at some point and setting it aside. But that's true freedom, because I think we get a lot of messages from young knife makers, it's always young knife makers who say, how do I go from being a hobbyist to a full-time maker? And what happens is, is, you know, in your mind, you think, all right, I can do a pretty good knife. Maybe I should do this full-time. But you, you, you have to take out, you don't realize that some of that artistic integrity, you have to take it away. Some of the passion has to go away in order for you to be able to be successful as a business, not as an artist. And I think that what you have is you have the ability to say, I'm just gonna make, I'm gonna, whatever, you know, floats my boat right now. And the funniest thing is, is something you said not too long ago, you said, I'm afraid of running out of ideas. When I look at all your work, there's, when I when I talk about, you know, I don't like talking about art on this podcast. <laughs> I've been waiting to have this conversation with you, but but not on this. Go ahead. Well, it's super, well, you know, you're on the short list of regards to guys who have the mentality that I think in regards to, Having this, you know, it's a, everything as an artist, a re, you know, a, a professional fine artist. You're looking at the work as a progression. You're looking at these short evolutions. So when people see the body of your work, you know where you came from. It's not a just jumping around and I'm going to do this now and I'm going to do that now. You see this progression. And one of the similarities between a lot of our knife makers are is they see the transition in terms of the technique, 
not the actual overall, you know, idea or the overall concept. So when I look at your work, when I saw the whale and the airplane and the leg, I see this, there's a very similar uh, figurative quality to it where you have this kind of, uh, I'm going to use a word that you guys are going to get mad about, juxtaposition between the handle and the, the knife creating this very uh, joyful contrast in terms of your whole decision making. But the freedom that you have is something that a lot of people think that they want and have a business, and I'm not 100% sure you can have both. Mm -hmm. Not everyone can have both. Some people can have both, but it's pretty rare, I think. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's based on if you have the ability to just, I'm going to make, you know, I remember hearing uh, Jason Knight say, I make what I make, and I, that's what I want. And yeah. if you want it, that's it. I don't make what other people want me to make. And he is, has the ability to have that freedom and I think that there are a lot of guys like Neil Kamamura has the same situation. There's a lot of guys who have that opportunity to say, and even Steve Schwartzer, he can make what he wants and he's going he's to sell it. I yeah. think that the hardest part is a lot of younger guys especially. And it's funny because you're kind of a younger guy. You know, you're, you know you're, you've only been doing this for four years and you've already established yourself breaking out of this kind of this unorthodox situation and you have, the, the, you have, you have it both ways. It's been, yeah, it's been great. You know, it's, uh, it's, there's a parallel to this in, in a lot of, I think, in a lot of crafts. It, it happens in woodworking. I, I still, like I told you before, I spent probably the, you know, I've in, been in and out of woodworking as a hobby or as a profession for the last 30 years, I'm going to say. And before that, I did it as a child in my, in my kitchen, if you can imagine that. Right. I had a small table saw in the kitchen of, of an apartment we grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my parents were artists, so they tolerated this. But in the woodworking business, there are these, you know, there are a lot of people who, who work in factories. There are a lot of people who love woodworking, but there are very few people who are making really high-end furniture. And a lot of them are either hooked up and got trust funds supporting them, or they're hooked up with designers and, you know, high-end designers that are catering to really um, wealthy uh, clients, and they're doing this this type of work that all of the woodworkers dream of doing, and that was kind of my dream. Um, but from a practical side, I, I faced that same situation where, you know, I all the woodworking jobs I ever got were, were hourly, and I never got to do what I really wanted to do uh, because the equipment wasn't accessible to me. So I was, you know, I would go into a factory, you know, make so sometimes make some really. Uh, fine furniture items. A lot of times it was just architectural woodworking or uh, cabinet making. And um, so, yeah, similar parallel, I, th I think, where there's very few people who could really achieve that high level um, of, of bringing together, you know, what the maker wants to make and, and matching that with a, a buyer who's equally excited about it. I think I have something I say, which is I think he you know, with some of the stuff I make, you have to be crazy to make it, and the person who buys it has to be a little crazy to buy it. Wow. You can, all, you can, you can delete that. No, we're not deleting anything. <laughs> now listen, I, I got to, you glossed over something that was something that Toby missed in the interview. You missed this, Toby, and I, and I you know, <laughs> you said that you grew up, your parents were artists. Yes. What kind of artists were they? My father was a sculptor and a painter. And my mother was uh, mainly a sculptor, but so also you... would, would draw. And I would, I would get dragged into this in various ways. We, we'd spend a lot of time going to art openings as kids. Uh, 
and also I'd get dragged in as a model from time to time. Not that I'm gorgeous or an Adonis or anything, but they did. <laughs> when it wasn't me, it was a chicken. <laughs> so, so both your parents were sculptors. Yes. So you were at a young age. You were exp you 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 were now we now we're getting into something. Yeah. But at a, a young age, you were exposed to uh, seeing things from a different standpoint, creating your you know your your experience. I knew this didn't come from nowhere. I knew this didn't. I, for some reason, I'm like, this guy all of a sudden, everything's so stylized, and there's such this 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 magnitude of like certainty. And now all of a sudden, I realize you were raised in an environment of creative people, yeah. and you were exposed to other things that allowed you to see how art was and how you can interpret art in the knife making. Yeah, absolutely. And in my mind, I resisted this because both parents were were artists. Both parents were teachers. Um, we, we grew up on a, you know, they separated at some point. We grew up in a, you know, a split household with low income on both sides. So I was, you know, vowed to myself, well, I'm obviously not going to become an artist because this is not economically viable. So I, I tried to find, you know, I went to, you know, went to college, got a couple of degrees, economics in, in Spanish and ended up in the business world. But really my entire life has mostly been consumed by by projects of that are sort of artistic pursuit well, had no or creative control. pursuit. Not really. You, you yeah. had no. There was no. There was no getting away from it. <laughs> Not really. When you have a table saw in the kitchen, both your parents are wood sculptors. Yeah. You know, it's there's going to be there's going to be hands. Everybody's hands are fucked up. Yeah. And, and there's going to be splinters <laughs> everywhere. So now, see Toby. Toby, I want to talk to you. Toby, you made a mistake. You missed this part. You missed this part. Your interview. Your interview is almost flawless, but you missed his background. My background is of stabbing myself in the hand with some sharp chisels and tools, and I've stabbed myself in the thigh. It goes all the way back to probably you know six or seven years old. Yeah. Somehow I've managed to get through most of it without anything, any major catastrophes. At least not that came from <laughs> from woodworking. <laughs> You've you mentioned a couple times now uh, that you did, you've done, you've done a lot of woodworking, uh, and I actually, before I got into metalworking, all I, my only experience, really, I mean, I did some drawing, but that was just kind of for shits and giggles for mm -hmm. myself. Uh, but woodworking was the predominant thing that I had experience with, and do you, so I'm curious how you think that woodworking has uh, kind of influenced your approach to your knife making or pattern design development or anything mm. like that because I know from my experience with woodworking you and, and I'm sure Jeff too with like railing work and other blacksmithing work and metal fab you know, there's a, a there's planning like you really got a plan especially when it comes um, yeah you, you got a plan on on, mm -hmm. on a series of events that have to happen before yeah you ultimately get to your final project yeah. or your, your finished project. Um, and so I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding your woodworking experience and metalworking. Yeah, it's certainly true. Like you can't start off saying, I'm going to make a chair and then you just like make, you know, you make a back, you know, rear right leg. And then you just say, I'll make it. The, and then I'll just make the chair from there. You have to have measurements and angles and everything has to be predictable and everything has to line up or, or you don't have anything because it's all based on joinery. So it's, it's a very different process in terms of, um, the woodworking versus the knife making for me there I should kind of shift gears a little bit to to do the knife making versus the woodworking because uh, where that where there is a lot of planning I agree in the in the pattern development there's there's no mistaking that you know you can't just 
if you if you want to end up with a certain pattern, you have you have to know how you're going to get there. And some things might happen along the way that could could change for me, anyways. Um, but that's not true in the woodworking. But some of the things definitely carry over. All the sculptural stuff um, with regard to w woodworking, um, uh, at least traditional woodworking, would have a lot of shaping with rasps, with you know, with chisels, uh, sort of a stock removal in a sense. Um, you can also bend wood, which is a little bit a different way of achieving a shape. But a lot of times, if you're going to do a you know a sculpted leg of a of a table or a chair, it has to be stock removal, and there's a an incredible amount of shaping involved that's usually by hand. Um, you can bandsaw out a, a rough shape, but you still have to blend everything together and contour it. So that really lends strongly to the, to the on the metalworking side, to the file work, to the, to the shaping of the handle and, and the continuity of the, of the form. You know, as you move from blade into handle, and, and also the, the different dimensional aspects of the knife, whereas it's not just a, a two-dimensional shape, it's not just a, a profile, it's got, you know, infinite number of angles to, to, to appreciate from, and, you know, you want to kind of take that into consideration, which is also similar, I think, to, to furniture. Uh, and as far as the pattern, uh, pattern construction, there, there are quite a few parallels, I think, that run between woodworking, uh, ceramics, glasswork and metalworking. And I've seen them adapted across these different disciplines and I've looked at woodworking on quite a few occasions. I did, I've done a checkerboard, uh, sort of a checkerboard design. It was one of the first adaptations I took from woodworking into steel. And, and actually the, the mechanical process of setting up the checker, checkerboard was exactly the same. I laid up, uh, I laid up eight strips, I don't, I don't have a, a chessboard rather. I laid up eight strips of um, I almost want to get up and go look at my chessboard. I'm, I'm, I can't believe it. I think it's it's eight white. Get up. Just don't move around too much. You hear a lot of bumping and grinding. Just try to keep still. Just keep still. If you're gonna get up because there's a lot of bumping around. I just gotta. I might. I'm in a squeaky chair. That might be the problem. Oh. Oh, geez. I'm a restless person. Hold on. Let me go. Let me go check. That won't take me long. All right. There he goes. <laughs> that, there you go. Our 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 interview with Joshua Prince. He left. <laughs> that's a, that's, a that's how you top another uh, different. Uh, another <laughs> Toby, maybe you're, yeah, Toby beat us now. You didn't get him to get that right. get up and leave. I don't claim to be an expert chess player, so it's four and four. So I laid up four black, four white, and that was four, you know, four, ten, eighty, four, fifteen, and twenty. Welded those together as an entire stack, then cut, um, then cut in eight places and flipped every other row. So that's that's the way chess boards are built in woodworking, huh. and that's exactly how I laid it up in the steel. And then extruded it out, and then made the tiles and so on. Um, nice. That's a while back in the feed, but that was a, that was directly from woodworking, and also the um, parquet, which actually uh, Mareko inspired when he um, posted. I think it was a pattern welded Wednesday, or it was some other post where you had uh, a hexagon. Oh yeah. So yep. I did a hexagon, but I adapted it again from woodworking, where uh, you you put you assemble three par three parallelograms into a hexagon shape. And then the hexagons are stackable, as you, um, as you I think, indicated in, in that post. And then you can forge weld those together uh, but after doing some cutting and some reassembly to make the, everything square. So that's, again, that, that came from woodworking. Um, so there are a lot of things that cross these disciplines that uh, if you can broaden your experience, I feel like you can, you can bring a lot more to what you're doing. Sure. I have a question in regards to when you first started out and 
I know that you're, you know, you have most of your experience comes from you know watching YouTube's and stuff, YouTube videos and stuff like that, which is which is incredible. How did you make the jump? Because when I look at your knives, I don't really see a lot of mono steel. It's always uh, forged Damascus. Uh, how did you make that jump from starting out to really focusing on uh, from forging to forging Damascus? I really, I mean, I went through the evolution. I think that most of us go through. I started off with with railroad spikes, but I immediately tried to put something in the railroad spike. I tried to split it open and, and forge weld, and they were all failures. They were all horrible. I had them in the basement, um, but I, you know, I, I started to look at as I started to make things and post things, I started to look at other people's work to try to find inspiration. And uh, I saw, what I saw was a lot of pattern welded stuff. And I was like, I got to try to figure this out. And I, I'll admit I'm the type of person that I'll pick up a guitar. I'll say, I want to learn how to play guitar, but I don't want to learn how, I don't want to learn chords. I want to learn how to play a solo, which is ridiculous. Because you're a sculptor, <laughs> you're two artists, your parents were both artists. That's it's, it's ridiculous. You don't pick up a guitar and start playing, a, you know, Eddie Van Halen solo. You got to learn chords first. You got to go through this. So I started in metalworking much the same way. I, I said I wanted, I want to try to play the solo, and I want to try to do these things that I, I didn't have the means to do. Um, I started trying to do these houndstooth, you know, patterns and these snake twists. But it gave me a lot of. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of failure in this, and especially in learning. It's a real hardship. It's a pretty steep climb. And, um, but I was determined, and I really enjoyed the... I, I kind of enjoy the heat and the fire and the smoke. And I like the work. And when I'm not working, I kind of miss the work. Um, sometimes when I'm working, I'm like, I'm absolutely miserable. I'm like standing... Like all of us were like, well, why am I doing this? You know, this is <laughs> torture. But as soon as I shut the machines down and I'm feeling better, I'm like, I kind of miss the work. Kind of a follow-up to the Damascus, you know, some of the stuff I've seen you do with Damascus, uh, I've, like I mentioned before, I've never seen before. Uh, one of the things that I remember when I first saw, I was just like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> I never thought about that. Is that you know, you see people do feather cuts all the time, hot cutting the steel, splitting it apart, put it back together. Yeah. Where you did one where you actually just you used a Damascus cutter. And then you just left it in there and did a, an insert yeah. and welded it up and then continued on your way with forging and, and making a pattern out of it. How, I guess, how... I'll tell you exactly maybe, what that you was. <laughs> it's well, and then, no, well, hold on a second. Yeah. Uh, maybe you don't know how exactly these ideas or concepts appear yeah. in your brain but and or how to articulate it exactly because mm. I know I struggle with that myself. Uh, but you know how do you just are you just you just see something and you're like oh shit I want to try that or you know how do how do these ideas come to you? Yeah, a little bit of both. Sometimes it's like um, I can't explain why I did something you know designed something a certain way I designed it, but but sometimes I can. In the case of that that um, that actually it was me splitting a feather and getting the getting the <laughs> getting the hatchet stuck in the split <laughs> and noticing okay. that it was actually welded. I got it out eventually, yeah. but I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool just to just to bury the hatchet, so to speak, and just leave it in there? Yeah. And that's exactly what that's I said. Perfect. Well, this is this is a this is gonna be fun. So I actually made um, I made a splitting tool, uh, welded it into a into the top of my uh, of my press, and I split the feather and I just left it in there. And I thought to myself, well if I you know, if I flux the top of the billet, scrub it real good, 
and take it right over to the press and drive that wedge in there, it's probably going to be pretty clean. And I'm not going to have, you know, oxidation. I'm not going to have any slag in there or, or flux, and it'll, it'll weld up nicely. And that, that worked out great. Um, a lot of the times I do these things, I never do them again. Like, I did that the one time, but I, I kind of not interested anymore. It, it oh, worked. You know, I did it. It worked. It was interesting, but it wasn't really... It wasn't you satisfied that yeah, curiosity. Yeah, exactly. It didn't. Hmm. I didn't have a specific um, thing I was going for. I just kind of wanted to do the experiment. However, someday in the future, that that could come in handy. Uh, so it's sure. kind of in the in the bag of tricks. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. How you doing over there, Jeff? <laughs> I can barely hear you. You might want to. Oh, get really? Through the mic, yeah. Okay. So when it's in, it's interesting to me because like I said you know you were saying like anybody else you start with a but you didn't really do any stock removal you were you were you and because you were you have this concept of this journey and you're on this exploration without without the trappings of is this going to make money or not mm-hmm. you're able to kind of like dive into something that you want to do without like I said without the without the expectation of return yeah I mean, I, I say to myself, I said to myself, I said, I'd probably be doing this and just making these things and putting them somewhere. Um, I mean, that's pretty much been my life. I've made furniture, furniture I could make and have it here in the house. So that, that had a practical outlet. Um, you know, you can only use so many kitchen knives. So I, I feel like I'd probably be making knives and, and stowing them uh, or saving them up for a show or something. I'd make knives regardless. Um, I, I, like, I do like to have a customer and I've always loved to sell things. Um, I used to make clay whistles when I was a kid, uh, little animal whistles, figures, and then I'd go to Providence, um, the nearest uh, city, and I'd, I'd set up a table and I'd sell them on the street, uh, probably 13, 14 years old. So I've always loved money. <laughs> I like to do business. So that's definitely a part of it. I do enjoy having customers. I, I you know, Nothing makes me happier than when somebody gives me really positive feedback on a knife that, they, that I've delivered to them um you know i always have those doubts like anybody you know is it good enough are they going to like it and, and you know uh with the, the, the things we cross our minds that you know no matter what you're making if you're making it it really is a representation of you and your skill and you want people you want your customers to really enjoy it sometimes you don't hear anything and i, I know that we've this has been covered sometimes you don't hear a peep and you, you wander and then but then you get that really positive feedback and that's exciting uh, but yes, the reason why you wonder is, is the similarities between, you know, people in business and artists is, you know, you are putting something, you are vulnerable. When you make something that you make yourself and then you put it out in the world to give it to someone, mm-hmm. you are putting something very vulnerable. You're vulnerable because you're putting something out from your heart or, or your hard work or wherever, something that you care about and you're kind of hoping for a pat on the back or you're just hoping that your whatever you're putting out there is received well yeah absolutely you know yeah so what's the next for you what are, what, are, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to doing i know that you know we, you know steve schwartz when steve schwartzer was on it was and we talked about who people to look for he was he said you without a question mm. i think that there's this expectation on you for discovery mm. and uh, what's next for Joshua Prince <laughs> well I got a super secret project that I just hinted at I hope it meets expectations but it's going to be a theme that's based on a haiku uh, that uh, that I kind of picked up off the internet from someone and uh, 
I'm not going to say anything more than that, but all it should right. be. <laughs> all right. It's a, so I, this is, I've made several attempts at this concept because this is, this goes back about three months. So I'm on the, probably the fourth iteration of it. But one of the previous iterations was a, it's a feather that I split and then I put a jelly roll in this feather. <laughs> So, Whoa. It, it's kind of a little bit wacky. It's a jelly-filled Damascus. Yes, that's right. <laughs> if, if I can't get there, see, Morocco has the incredible talent of being able to manipulate the pattern he wants to see. I, I don't, I can't always do that. So I end up fabricating. So if I can't get it one way, I, I get it another way. And um, so this is sort of the final product is not that jelly roll feather, but it's something a little bit different, but it's still fabricated. So I'm looking forward to kind of releasing that and seeing seeing how it's received. I really hope that you took Nick Anger's advice. Like that should be on your fucking door. I love what he said. I hope I hope he's okay with me putting that out he, there. I, I Nick Anger is one of my favorite human beings because he has the true he's, artist spirit. He gets in terms it. Of, he gets it, you know. Well, I mean that's the thing. It's it's when you when you truly want to become an artist or a sculptor or something like that, you have to like, you have to shed the shackles of other people's work. Yeah. You have to shed influence and oh, this is the way this is supposed to be. This is the spot. This is the way the profile is supposed to be. Oh, this is the way this is supposed to be. And when you can kind of shed that away, you can actually really dive into something really unique. And I think that that you have established that. And I know for a fact. That uh, one knife that I did, the biggest, the full biggest forged uh, Damascus integral knife I've ever done with uh, Bob Rank and Steel. It was definitely once I started forging it, it started to look like something you made. And I <laughs> wrote about it. I said, you know, this is definitely Josh Prince, Josh Prince inspired. Yeah, I saw no that. No question about it. That was really cool. No question about yeah, it. Thank you. Well, it's true. <laughs> I mean, so so it's like I think that I think that being able to kind of separate yourself out and part of that separation out is. The fact that you aren't influenced by other teachers, you aren't influenced by people that you work for or people that you know you're you know you want to make your knives closer to, mm -hmm. and I think that there's a, there's an innocence and there's um, a sincerity to it that I'm envious of. Yeah. Well, well thank you. I, I mean, I think we all like you have to consume like like I could. I don't think anybody can just day one make something that's really great. I think you have to consume a lot of visual information, and it has to look like a knife. It has to function like a knife as well. Obviously, that's critical. But um, at, at some point, you kind of really get it. Like, this is what a knife is supposed to look like. This is what a good knife looks like. It, and it, it seems subjective, but somehow it, in, in practice, it doesn't end up being subjective. It's really an objective observation. Like, that's a really cool-looking thing, you know, whatever it is. And it takes a while to get there. It takes years to get there, frankly. I feel like it's taken me... Only four years for you. Yeah, it's taken me it's not, four years. It's not a very long amount of time. And like anyone, I think, probably not happy, you know, 100%. Right. You know, kind of like... You can't ever... You never, you never get there. That's the point. You never get there. But you make a lot of discoveries along the way. And I think that's... That's really cool. I I could do better with sharing, but I you know it's it keeps me busy enough just the forging. And the Instagram side is um, it can keep you pretty busy too. Well, we have some questions from listeners. Wow. About Damascus and stuff, and I thought maybe you know we've talked and. Would you like to go into some questions? I will attempt to answer them. <laughs> All right. Well, you both can. They're both of you can. I'm glad Miracle's here. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, we want your opinion too. Yeah. All right. So, well, 
before we get into that, should we should we read a little damn right about our sponsor? You're gonna do it. You gotta do it. All right. So our sponsor, Combat Abrasives. We love this. I love these belts. Uh, I just so I just finished up, or I didn't just finish up. I finished it up a while ago. But I had this giant uh, W2 blade that I just posted up, and when I was grinding on that thing, I was so thankful <laughs> that I had my combat abrasives because I forget how wear resistant W2 is, especially when it's at a high hardness. And if I was, I, I've ground on that stuff with other belts and it was a huge pain. And the belts glaze over, the combat just smashed right through the, uh, through the material uh, so I could get the work done. Um, if you go to combatabrasives.com, uh, you can save 15% with the promo code KNIFETALK15. And we actually have a testimonial from uh, our faithful listener, Mr. Mike DePel. He says, uh, in the 8-inch Buffing Wheels episode, there's a worry about water affecting belts. I found a 60-grit ceramic combat abrasive belt in my uh, slack, tu or slack tub. Yeah. Um, and he says, I estimated... Uh, it was in there for months. I let her dry out and then ran at 50% speed uh, before starting to go full full blast. Uh, full blast bo podcast, by the way. Uh, still cut steel great. <laughs> it still cut the steel great like it was a fresh belt, seemingly unaffected after being submerged for months. So, um, you know, I don't know if that's a guarantee they want to back up, but I know... It's a testimonial. <laughs> yeah. It was in water, he dried it out, it worked like right. a charm. Can I, can I, I amend myself, to this at some point? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Go so ahead. I got a fresh box of combat abrasive belts in my entry, and I'm ready to go to war. I got about 10 knives. I got a, 10, 10 of these knives that I told you I got inspired to make and set aside. I said that I can't have that because they're, they're going to be awesome. I got a, I got a box of belts just waiting for me and I've changed my mindset about belts and I got to be determined to stick to this but belts are something you I mean they last right they last but they don't last forever and I got to stop trying to make them last forever mm. and just yeah. you know because that's what for me anyways um, what makes it more of a joy as far as the grinding is concerned good good abrasives and oh yeah not trying to make them last forever like being reasonable Absolutely. about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so it. Go to Combat Abrasives, Knife Talk 15, get yourself some 15% off, and then get some belts and grind away. That's, that's All right. Ticket. Give them help. All right. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? So, this is the part of the show where we talk, or, well, we ask you guys to ask us questions. Uh, and I think Jeff put the word out asking for Damascus questions, especially because we had uh, our friend, we have our friend, Mr. Josh Prince here. And so we're just gonna get right into them. Um, this first one is from Joe Miller. He says, getting into Damascus for the first time, is there a general rule for th of thumb uh, for how long to leave the Damascus in the ferric and is coffee soak only for darkening the pattern? How do you etch the spine and belly after handles are epoxied on without ruining the wood handles? I really like the look uh, of the pattern showing through instead of a satin finish on the spine. Thanks. Hmm. What do you think, guys? It's two a, he's talking about a full tang knife. Yeah. It's two parts it is a two-parter. So yeah. basically, the first part is uh, uh, etching depth um, and coffee and then, uh, and then how to get it etched on the spine or on the tang. 
at the spine of the belly. Yeah, full tang, right? Full tang knife? Yeah, full tang. I can try you to do kick the full it off, tang part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's worked for me with the full tang is I, I get the whole knife prepped. Um, the steel, no handles. You know, I get the I get the handles. I guess it depends whether or not you've sculpted the handles or how you, what your approach is for, for assembling the handles, handles onto the full tang. But for me, I would fully sculpt everything, blend it all together up to up to the grit for the for the wood, and then I would bring the you know get everything shaped right. It's um, pinned temporarily, not affixed permanently. And again, this goes back to depends what kind of pins you're using. If you're using pins that are not threaded, then you you don't you don't have this option. But assuming you're using corbies or something like that, assemble it on temporarily, which you guys have covered in depth. Get it all shaped remove the scales, then bring the steel up to full etching um, a grit, 400, 800, whatever you want, etch it fully, and then, uh, you know, as we talked about before, as you guys have talked about before, because I listen, uh, don't put a ton of epoxy all over everything. Just put enough to affix the scales on, seal it reasonably, and then put your corbies on. And then you have a fully etched blade with fully finished handle scales, and then you just have to worry about knocking the corbies down, which is on the side that doesn't affect the etch. How'd I do? Yeah. I think that's a great answer. All right. Yeah. I, I, uh, when I was on Fortune Fire the second time, uh, I did actually have a bunch of hidden pins in my handle material, but I, I, the blade was out of Damascus, and I wanted to make sure that was all etched um, before, or in, in, in the final piece so that. Yeah, it just it had that pattern showing. Uh, a, hot, a hot tip I got actually from Adam and Haley DeRogers a long time ago uh, was to just use a few little dots or spots of glue um, to affix. So I used the pins to help keep the, the handle material where I wanted it. And then I had just a couple few, like I think maybe like four spots of super glue, little, just little dots that helped keep it from just the handle material from just sliding back off because I wasn't using a Corby bolt to kind of temporarily hold it on there. Um, and then I got the handle sculpted and just like Josh was saying, using the Corby bolts to do the handle sculpting, then it doesn't take much, either just a little tap or even just a, a, some very gentle heat from like a heat gun will help loosen up that, that glue and you can take the handle material back off, etch the blade, put that and then once it's all etched the way you want it put it back on final glue up and you're, you're good to go mm. um, so that, that if you're not using a Corby and you're using pins that is one that's also another way that you could um, you could approach that and and then regarding ferric um, Josh do you have any ideas on or thoughts on how how long to let it soak while you're etching and how or how frequently to check it Hmm. How deep to etch it, any of that stuff? I use the dilute. I think it's like one to four, one to it's probably one to five, one to six. I don't really keep track, and if it's looking a little low because I've poured some off, I'll add a little distilled water in there. So it's pretty. Sure. Mine, is, mine is dilute. I leave it in the first round. I clean it up really good. I actually um, used to use acetone. I stopped. If this is bad advice, just let me know if you don't. No, 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 I, you, no, I stopped. No. I stopped with the acetone because I was having problems. I was having streakiness. I don't sure. know if it was a paper towel. 
or the acetone or something around the rim of the acetone. Anyways, I gave up on all that. So now I just take the blade with, uh, with or without gloves. I try to hold it by an area that doesn't matter. Like if it's a stick tang, I'll hold it by that. And I just use uh, palm olive or something in hot water uh, to prep my knife. After the, all the sanding, I prep the knife, I, I wash it down. Oh, I yes. might use acetone first, but then I clean it up nice with the palm olive dish soap in hot water and get it nice and rinsed off, and then I kind of run to where my acid is. I don't, I don't want to have it hanging around, having like the water droplets dry up or anything. I, I take it immediately to my acid and I dunk it in there and I leave it for about 20, 30 minutes, first round. I take it out and I scrub it down by, by hand. This might be kind of lazy, but I scrub it down by hand with the oxides. Sometimes I'll use a high grit paper, but I've stopped doing that. I just, just use my hand see how it looks and then go in for another, you know, another round of 20 minutes, something like that. Yeah. I'm not very scientific. I kind of go by how it looks and if it looks you good, know, I stop. You know, I, I've, I've invested in uh, those blue scrubbies. You know, you, you can, when you buy Scotch-Brite, you can buy, even if you're just going into like the janitorial aisle, I don't know what it's Oh yeah. You can get the green scotch bright that actually you you know you can use for satin finish or the blue scotch bright that won't scratch at all oh. i love the blue scotch bright that won't scratch at all because yeah. i can scrub the shit out of some steel mm. without worrying about putting you know changing any kind of scratch pattern just to get any oils off right just in yeah. oxide yeah oh in between yeah yeah i feel like it's uh i mean there's definitely a process that you can create for yourself that's repeatable um, for me, the etching is all, it's kind of like, oh, I just want to be done. You know, I've done all this work. I just want to dunk it in there, pull it out and say, voila. <laughs> you've, you've done the hard part already. And now you're just yeah. like, I just want to, yeah, I want to kick, I want to kick down a wall and bust through like the Kool-Aid guy, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah. Now, now we're in the same generation. Now I know we're in the same generation. Yeah. That Kool-Aid man rules. Oh, yeah. All right. The next question comes from. Clinton. Oh wait, I had I had something to add, to build on what Josh was saying. I'm sorry. I absolutely agree with Josh uh, regarding you know it's not necessarily a certain amount of time like over you know how whatever he, he said he checks it every 20 minutes or so. Uh, I do basically the same thing, uh, and also am looking for depth, not necessarily not necessarily a certain or and kind of a look. But it, I look for a certain depth because then I go to the coffee to get my contrast. Now you can. He is asking, is can you get depth? Um, or sorry, he's saying asking. You know, is coffee only for darkening? And actually, you can get depth with coffee. It just takes way longer. I left a knife in coffee uh, a little while ago for two days, which would be terrifying, I think, for most people, especially if they, it was ferric. Uh, but the coffee. Or especially if they're used to fair, but the coffee is so mild um, that the depth that I got was wasn't even what I would normally try to go for with my ferric, but it was getting there. It would just take probably a couple more days. Um, so you can, if you are in a pinch or you don't have access to ferric, you can um, use coffee for depth as well as for contrast. I'm glad you brought that up because there's other variables that we're not talking about. I I think you have to consider the tightness of the pattern. Sure. So, so if you're doing yeah. a pattern with a, you know, uh, if you're doing a pattern with, that's got super tight bands of alternating steel, that's where that depth edge is really cool because you can get like a chatoyant effect if you get a good depth versus yeah. if you have like 
Um, I've done some patterns where I have like wide open areas of, of 1080 and wide open areas of 15 and 20. And in that case, I don't think the depth is the depth of etch is so much going to be your friend because you might end up with these weird steps where you're washing off, you're, you're removing the oxides on the dark. And that's where the coffee might come back in at the la at the end, you know, when you when you put it in the coffee, I think that's where, where it might help you lock in those dark areas that otherwise might be a little patchy. Yeah. All right. Very good. The next question comes from Clayton Harrison. Hey, man, can you talk about press dyes? Uh, what kind of dyes do you, uh, what kind of dye in the forge welding process do you use? Uh, thank you. Mm. So we're talking hydraulic presses. What kind of dyes do you guys use and you suggest? I only know the ones I have. That's it. And the ones I have are two by, they're two inch by four inch, and they're flat dyes. And they're not so flat anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I just keep, <laughs> I just use it. I just keep using it that, that way. I don't do a lot of like extreme extrusion. I don't know if that's the word, where you're really, really looking to draw it out quickly. I'm not too worried about drawing anything out quickly. Even even no. I just want to manage it not quickly. Actually, I, I want to manage it slowly, and kind of keep my uniformity down the billet. So I just use the flat dies. And if I want more control, I'll go. They're, mine is the mine are at an angle to the face of the press, so they're at sort of like a, right. a 45 degree angle. So if I want to if I want to do more uh, drawing, I'll use the short side, the two inch dimension of these little uh, of the top and bottom die because they're aligned. If I want to do uh, more control, I'll use the four inch. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the same school or same boat. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> I'm on the same team. Same school boat. Uh, same school. <laughs> same boat. Um, when it comes to forging, yeah, I just use my flat dies. I don't have drawing dies. Uh, I, as uh, Josh just said, you know, I'm not in a hurry to draw things out because I I have done that in the past, and mm. I've also that's usually led to fucking stuff up with things not moving in the direction that I wanted it to go uh, because I was trying to work it too quickly and draw it out too fast and I, I call it I was actually just talking to our, our friend Andrew Wozniak from Colony Knife Company uh, he uh, he was asking me some questions and you know I told him you know I'm not in a hurry to to forge it out I, I like to refer to it as massaging the steel and so it's just kind of little smaller bites um over longer time to get the things forged out but i feel like that allows yeah a lot more control in what direction the pattern is oriented and and keeping maintaining those directions too because you can get it like say you forge on the bias or something like that um you can get that oriented nicely and then if you start thinking okay now i can start racing to the finish to get this forged down dimension and drawn out that's when things in my again in my experience yeah. things get messed up and uh and you end up screwing up the orientation or the, or the flow of those lines and that pattern and so yeah i just yeah. I, I agree i am in the school of lo, uh, slow and small bites and just massaging it out it looks cool as hell though when you see a video and it's like pinching it and it's like oh, yeah. it goes from like you know a tall stack to like a, a two feet long and like you know one round but it's not if, if it's right. mono steel sure but with this pattern stuff definitely not or if you're just doing like that. oh go ahead sorry i have a question about that in regards to because i know you guys are talking about using flat dies 
Um, I was talking to uh, Cliff Dufton, and he, when he was starting to say, and we, I might have mentioned this before, but I'm fascinated by the fact that he was saying that when he was using the flat dies, the, the top of, he started to preheat the dies because when he would press, the dies would act like a uh, heat sink mm. and actually take the top, the top layers, the top layers of your stack were not forging because they were all the heat was getting sucked out of them from the dies. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Well, and that's where a smaller bite would benefit you. Mm -hmm. So there's right. basically less contact with those dies by doing smaller bites versus even, you know, the difference between an eighth inch bite and a, like a quarter inch bite. Yeah. That, the amount of heat it sucks out is astonishing. Yeah. Um, it's like your grilled cheese so, when you want it to cook up quicker, you just leave a weight on top of it, right? Or a spatchcock chicken. Spatchcock? Nothing? Nothing? Yeah, that, Anyone? No, it's, that's, no. that's, appropriate, that's appropriate culinary talk. Okay. Culinary talk. <laughs> there's, no, there's no jokes there. <laughs> I don't want I don't want the lack of laughs to be my responsibility. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you know, I mean that was you're using proper terminology for breaking yeah. the backbone out and having a flat burn. So you put the weight you see put some weight on it. You put some weight on it if you want it to if you want that heat to get in. This is like the reverse of it though. <laughs> well you're also getting and speaking of which in regards to those small bites, you're getting a different performance if you're using a power hammer versus a press. Press, you know, you, the, con the contact is the contact with the dies is longer than if you were to do hits with the power. Hand. Yeah, right. I agree. I, I used to take my dies out and put them by the forge to heat them up, but now I got a, a chunk of metal that I just keep for that purpose. Um, when I turn the forge on and I'm getting everything ready, I just put it in the back, and it, when it's hot enough, I just close the I close the press on it and just leave it that way. Oh, nice. Yeah, because I can't get my die after. A, some forging my dies kind of get locked in there and I can't get them out without sure, sure. a bunch of hammering and stuff. Uh, All right. Yeah. Are we ready for the next one? All the time. All right. This is from Tom Moss. <laughs> he says, when it comes to uh, welding mosaic blocks slash tiles, does a TIG welder add any benefit over a cheap MIG or stick? Josh, yeah, I got a. What are you working I on? think because of you, um, I saw the TIG welds that you were doing uh, when I visited you in Connecticut on your on your tiles, and uh, it took me like a year to get one, but I did get one eventually. Like I got a cheap scratch scratch start TIG, like three hundred bucks, and uh, oh, yeah, sure. I'm no good at it, but um, I'm getting better at it. But I got it's argon fed and it's a scratch start, and I use that on all my tiles, and that's huge because I don't have to stop at any point and go grind the welds off. I, I just ignore them like they're not there. You know, I don't worry about right. it. And that, uh, I mean that's exact. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Just fusion, no, no fill, just, just like that. Right. Yeah. yeah if I use fill, um, then it's pr only on the end of the billet mm. more than any, if anything, mm. uh, to really help secure and hold those things together while I'm doing the fusion welds yes. along the length of the billet. Um, but, you know, yeah, TIG, a TIG makes a big difference. Like you were saying, if you're using MIG, um, you're, you're pushing material in pretty heavily. And if, if you, uh, you know, if you're doing that, then you got to kind of pause it at, at, at one point and take the time to uh, clean things up on the, on the billet. You got to etch it. 
you gotta take a look and see where those kind of muddy areas, those cloudy areas of big are, and you gotta grind that out. Because otherwise, if you don't, you're just gonna keep shoving that into the blade as you continue to forge it down into a blade shape. And especially if you're taking it close to, a, or you know, close to a dimension. Um, then you know that mig is in that mig's there the whole time there's a strong very 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 strong likelihood that that is in that blade and it's you know you could have spent you know days mm. <laughs> forging out the pattern and then to get mig stuck mm. in somewhere in a glaringly obvious spot in the blade is the absolute yeah. worst uh, i gotta give props to bob rankin he actually uh, set me up with a, a TIG welder that I've been using. I've been so thankful to have, and I've been using the shit out of, because it just it makes me feel so much better that you know, knowing that my joints are clean and that I don't have to go chasing after MIG welds or anything like that. Uh, it, 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 I think it really makes a big difference. And I, I actually used a scratch, um, scratch. What do you call it? Scratch start. Scratch start. Yeah. For the it means first time. No pedal. That means there's yeah. no, like whatever yeah, the no, dial is it's, that's it yeah no trigger or anything yeah so um i used one of those re actually when i was down in uh georgia um for the first time mm. it it was actually surprisingly <laughs> it, it was a little tricky at first yeah uh, but then i found that if you just get the point close to the material mm. it'll it'll it'll, it'll jump the arc i'll try that yeah like and that. it'll and it'll it'll start going without actually having a scratch. It's also very uh, civilized kept... welding. You know, it's like quiet, and you know, there's no smoke. Yeah, <laughs> it's very lovely. Yeah. I've yeah. always called TIG welding the fly fishing. Of yeah, I like that. Yeah. Gentlemen's it is. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I got actually got a tip from uh, Mike Quisenberry a few like a year ago. He told me that when he uses a TIG and if he uses filler rod. If you use stainless steel filler rod, when you're grinding it, oh, yeah. the weld turns bright blue. Cool. So yep. you know exactly where all your weld is. Cool. So that was a really cool thing. He's just like, yeah, because what you don't want is you don't want to have to, you don't have to search around. But if right. you're using filler rod and you use stainless steel, when you grind, the, the heat will make the, uh, the stainless steel look blue. I, I did notice the TIG puts a tremendous amount of heat into the billet, way more than the MIG. And that has caused issues with uh, what I think what Rebecca was referring to, where you know you tig on one side and it, you flip it over, you tig on the other side, and it pops the weld on the other side. It puts an intense amount of heat, uh, especially when you're not welding. good at it. <laughs> well, but also that's fuse welding in general. I mean, yeah. When we used to do construct when I was in fabrication. You know, we we would fuse together. Uh, you know, it's usually sheet metal. You know, when you're making we were making canopies or something like that, or flashing or or some sort of like. Um, skin for uh, whatever um, like steel skin on the on a, on a baluster or something like that or like a pillar you know you're fuse welding because you don't want to add more material to grind off and you can just but what happens is you're just losing you're just melting two pieces of material together there's no structural you're not adding welding is adding you know just fusing together is a whole different ball game but um, I don't know what I was going to say I going to say something you want to keep going? Yeah. All right. The next question yeah, yeah. comes okay. from uh, Valiron. Valiron. Hey, guys, I have a question for Moreco. On his Forged in Place series, he did a hardening during the thermal cycle prior to doing a subcritical anneal and final hardening. 
I would like to understand why he hardened the blade at that point. I don't understand what the utility is. The thermal cycling and annealing should set the grain structure up really well for hardening. And I don't understand what the benefit of the intermediate hardening provided. Thanks for a great show. Love listening to you every Monday. Uh, has been a, It's the highlight of my week. So do you want to kind of go into your process? or? Yeah, so in the video, I thermal cycle. And um, I thermal cycle the blade out of the forge after for, after I'm done forging. Which is uh, also I do normalizing. It, yeah, or, or called, yeah, or normalizing it. And I'm just bringing it up to critical temperature or basically the temperature you would want to harden from. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And on the third time, I actually hardened the blade. Um, and so I, uh, and the idea of that and what I, and I'm not the metallurgist, but, you know, your, your steel organizes itself into different crystalline structures. You have perlite, ferrite, cementite, you got martensite, bainite, there's all this different stuff that could happen in there. Um, and so I've been told um, and advised by a lot of very talented and knife makers who are much smarter than me um, that doing your final hardening from tempered martensite um, is the best, you, you can get the best results um, or produces the, uh, the better performing material. Mm. And so what I'm doing is on that third thermal cycle, I quench and I quench all the way down and harden the blade. But then I go back into the forge to do a subcritical anneal like immediately. Um, but what that subcritical anneal is, it's, is it's staying below the critical temperature. So essentially I'm over tempering the steel but it's still retaining that martensitic structure. It's still martensitic crystals and grains in there. They're just extremely over-tempered. And so at this point, um, if I wanted to go grind, it grinds like butter, it drills really easily. It's super easy to, yeah, I do this with my Damascus. I do this with basically everything. Um, but when I go back to do my final hardening, after I'm if I'm doing any primary grinding, um, or whatever, or even if I'm not, um, when I go back to my final hardening, not only does that subcritical anneal help over temper that martensite, but there's there's something about it that I don't quite understand. But almost every single knife I make comes out straight without any problems of extreme warping or anything like that. Um, but and then and and again on that final hardening, I'm hardening from what was previously. Um, over-tempered martensite. So I'm, it's it's about creating a specific grain structure or type of crystal that I'm doing my final hardening from. Um, so instead of hardening from perlite or something else or ferrite or anything else, I'm hardening from over-tempered martensite. Mm. That is why I do that intermediate hardening that I then immediately temper and then do a final hardening from. That's that, that that's what I would have said. Same same thing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, there you go. I have no idea. I I got a lot of people asking quite to like I don't understand and honestly yeah. I I completely get where they're coming from because I would have been in the same boat. Yeah, we got um, a lot of these questions and I thought at one point I'm gonna ask one of them. We're gonna ask you one time. And I think that's perfect. Yeah. Would you do that? I have a question. Would you do that regardless of thickness of the material at that point? Um, in other words, uh, you know, if you're going to do like a, a large Bowie and you're Bowie, Bowie, 
You're going to do it from uh, full thickness and then do all your um, uh, grinding from fully hardened steel. Would you still follow the same process? Oh, so like if I didn't forge uh, like a like a taper down exactly. to the edge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would, yeah. actually. Okay. I would still try to create that Martin Siddick uh, crystal that I'm then tempering and then doing my final hardening from. Nice. Yeah, yeah. All right. This next one. All right, and Jeff, do you have something else? No, no, of course not. The only thing I've ever heard, I, I heard subcritical Anil from uh, Aaron Wilburn, and but I there was no I didn't do, I didn't do quenching when I did the subcritical. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm fascinated by your process. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it was it was Devin Thomas actually that um, offered that advice to me, and his son Laren, who has knife steel nerds. He could probably better, way better, um, and he might be worth getting on the podcast, actually. Uh, but he could way better explain that in a much more scientific way or, or not necessarily, obviously, ideally not too scientifically because then it's just going to be over everybody's head. But um, he's a PhD. Nah, you did a good job. You did a perfect job. You know what I think is, is people see that and they think, oh, this goes against that kind of wisdom. Not wisdom. It's probably false wisdom that, you know, quenching more than one time is somehow problematic and it kind of seems it seems to go against that although you've explained sure. it you know more than adequately makes perfect sense i'll take it <laughs> all right let's move on to this next one is from uh oh geez leonard peterman i almost <laughs> i almost called him <laughs> leo neppard <laughs> <laughs> I was like, who's Leo Neppar? That's a weird name. Uh, he says, hey, man, can I ask you a question? Have you ever had a small injury that still kept you from going uh, going to the workshop? Currently, I have what they call a typewriter's cramp, which is too bad, uh, but still keeps me from doing uh, sorry, that isn't too bad, but keep, still keeps me from doing any kind of hard sanding, uh, hashtag Rhinoet, and so on. And it's really frustrating. So have you ever had something similar to this? Um, and how did you handle it? Josh, you guys have you ever hurt yourself so bad you couldn't work? I mean, I don't want to be braggadocious. It's, it's tough to keep me. It's tough to keep me out of there, you know. Um, but if he's, that's something very specific he's referring to, the hand sanding. If, he, if one of your hands is bad, you're not hand sanding, right? It doesn't matter. Um, have I, been, I haven't injured myself. I mean, I've cut fingertips open, and that's made it a hardship um, to hand sand, you know, specifically to the task that was brought up in the question. But um, nah, so far I've been okay. Anything, Mareko? Have you hurt yourself to the point where you couldn't work? Yeah, actually, you know, I had my back went out on mm -hmm. me, and I just, like, I couldn't even stand up. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely did not go into work. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it's good. What about you, Jeff? Yeah. I had welder's blindness. Oh, I was, yeah. Um, I was making this giant sculpture, and I was TIG welding it in my basement, and I was trying to... My whole opinion about welding is um, I think that the most important thing is being comfortable. It's sitting in a comfortable position and having your hand in a comfortable position. So I put myself on a bench, on a, on a chair, and I was sitting comfortably, and my, my elbows were in. I was just kind of nice and easy, you know, welding away. But the position that I was, the, the arc bounced off of my chest and up underneath my mask. So my mask wasn't touching my chest. It was, it was out. And it flashed across my chest, 
and then into my mask and then into my eyes and I didn't even notice and then that night I I couldn't I couldn't keep my eyes closed they felt like sand yeah, it's the worst. it felt like there was sand in my eyes and I couldn't cl- it hurt to close them it hurt to open I couldn't sleep all night I I, I was like I was like I couldn't it was the it worst freaks you out. Couldn't, yeah it freaked me out and my family was away so the next morning I just thought I might be going blind I could see, but I couldn't blink, and so I got to um, I got to I got some saline solution from the drugstore, and then I went to an optometrist who was like, you know, they sell you know in the mall, and they looked at my eyes and they say, yeah, you have it's like welder's blindness. And I told him, I said my eyes hurt, and I was doing a lot of welding, and they thought that I'd been staring at the sun or something. I had like sunburns on my eyes, so they told me. What I was doing was right, just saline and rest, and then it'll get better. But that scared the shit out of me. You want to hear a quick story about that? Yeah, go ahead. When I was about, uh, let's say about 24, 25, I moved to Spain with my family. Excuse excuse me. That's where my wife is from. So I got a job on a construction site, uh, iron workers. We were putting up a mall. I had no idea. I never worked around any of this stuff. And the the people that were around me were experts. They were welders. They were... They were fabricators. They were building the superstructure for this mall, and I, my 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 job title was literally in Spain. They still have the, like their <clears throat> traditional uh, work system. My my job title was uh, first class peon. It sounds way better in Spanish. First class peon. Yeah, peon primera clase. <laughs> that was the job title, but I had no clue. So this guy was welding. I was just standing there, like cranking the. I think I had to crank the welder up or down depending on what he wanted. And uh, you, you know, he give me instruction. I was literally watching him weld to, as much as I could, and I had to look away, obviously. And that night, I experienced what you just described. So, if anybody thought I was <laughs> a genius, <laughs> this will dispel that impression. Well, I mean, that's the, the biggest problem, and a lot of people just close their eyes. But you have to do more than just. Close I learned, them. yeah. It right through, yeah. It goes right through the, your eyelids. So. Well, later on, we used to do the no-look welding. I got to be a real. A real cowboy, you know, on that after about a year. You know, I got friends to do that. Even the t- even just with attacking with the with the uh, with the makeup, yeah. I get so like I get creeped out. The other thing is, is like I I'm very very I don't weld in a t-shirt. Like I always have sleeves because I've got severe sunburns or oh, you know yeah. radiation burns for that for lack from welding in a t-shirt. Like it's it's uh <laughs> it's something that you you don't realize and then you take it for granted and you know you're tig welding in a you know in a t-shirt and then next thing you know you know you you know mm-hmm. you get like extra freckles with extra hair going on yeah yeah so the next question comes from trinity edgeworks hey guys what's that grinder company you guys keep talking about again and is there any codes for them <laughs> thanks again for the great podcast why yes there is trinity edgeworks it's broadback ironworks Broadback Ironworks makes a 2x72 grinder from knife makers, designed by knife makers for knife makers. I just got off the phone with Vince uh, and and Ryan. Vince told me that the podcast listeners are a huge part of their success to the point where Vince just quit his day job. And Vince and Ryan both quit their day jobs and they're full 100% Broadback Ironworks. So congratulations to you guys. Um, I'm super happy for you. I'm super happy the podcast is working out for you. It's incredibly versatile, intuitive. It's got a long platen and a long adjustable work rest. It can pivot from horizontal to vertical with all sorts of attachments in development. 
he was, they were telling me some new attachments that I'm not supposed to talk about that are very, very exciting. Plus, they're doing, they have a surface grinder attachment that they're working on. Plus, they're making an integral bolster uh, attachment. They're working on constantly making upgrades to this machine. It is my number, it is my number one machine. Um, you don't need a wrench to change out the platens. Um, it, everything fits in boxes, and the, the price of the shipping is included in the price. So when you look on the thing, you think, oh, no, it's going to be another $200 of shipping. No, 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 no. The shipping's in the price. And if you go to broadbeckironworks.com and put in Knife Talk 5, you'll get 5% off. Plus, if you follow them on Instagram, they're always throwing out some deals. They're always throwing out a deal or two. So follow them on Instagram because you'll, you'll, you'll have a quick weekend deal and, and you get some stuff. So I also got a testimonial from, um, we were getting testimony. You guys are very smart. You know if you, you know how to get your names read because you, if you compliment us or if you talk about our sponsors, we'll feed it in. So congratulations to Te Thomas Nugent wanted to tell me, I just wanted to give Vince from Broadback Ironworks a shout out. I DM Broadback a question and Vince got back to me right away. I then had a great conversation with him and he explained all the details about the grinder and all the great attachments coming out for it. I'm really pumped to get this new one and I think it's going to be a real game changer for me as a maker. RodbeckIronworks.com, Knife Talk 5, go follow these guys. They are real guys, real knife makers making a machine that's got lots of value for knife makers. RodbeckIronworks.com. Okay, the next question comes from Delta, because the last question was a <laughs> so the next one comes from Delta and Beta. What is the best hand tool you've ever bought? No power, not power tools. What hand tool is the best hand tool you've ever bought? Hmm. Josh. Man, uh, there's so many, but I love my files. <clears throat> I don't know if that is that collectively one tool or many. Whatever you want. I love files, like filing, filing like bolsters and filing curved areas. Um, I know I can machine them, and I've got you know I got a few small attachment wheels and stuff like that. But just to be able to clamp it in a vise and just sit there—it's it's just nice. I can do—I've got a vise set up outside. I got another one out in the shed, and I've got one in the basement. And sometimes I just clamp it to my kitchen table and do a little filing there. But I love my files, um, and they, but they got to be—they got to be the the nice crisp ones, you know, the new ones. What kind of files do you like? Uh, round files. I don't know what the name, technical name for it is, but I've got various uh, diameters of round files. I love those. And then, the, is it a half to half round? Half, half round, round bastard. That's one of my favorites right there. Yeah. I use them, I actually use them hot. Um, I oh, use yeah. them hot and I use them cold, both ways. Uh, and, one thing, yeah. sorry, good point. Yeah. I was going to add in regards to when you're buying files, one of the things that I always gets me crazy is if you go to a store and you look at the files, the, especially the thin round ones, you get some thin round files, but if you go to the chainsaw section, chainsaw files are the better for me. I think the chainsaw files are my favorite of the thin round files. So I'm always, I'll look at what the, you know, the assortment packs and all that stuff, but then I'll run over to where the chainsaws are and I'll grab some of those small chainsaw files because I like yeah. them better. <clears throat> On soft steel, it's like, it's like magic. I mean, you go and you see the, right. see the filings piling up. It's, it's pretty satisfying. Mareko, what's your favorite, what's the best hand tool you have or that you bought or that you like? You know, <laughs> I, I I gotta say that my my files are probably the thing, the hand tool uh, that I rely on 
the most when I'm using it. I, I just I don't have another way of doing whatever I'm doing with those files, <laughs> except for using the files. Um, so I, I would say that that they're definitely the ones that I I, I would re I rely on the most. I, I can't replace it. Like I could I have a carbide sky scribe, which is great, but I can also use the tip of my pocket knife to scribe a line too, right? Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. I got a hole punch. I could use all kinds of shit. To, you know, to pop a little hole, but the files, they do work that I can't do with other yeah. <laughs> things. So I'd, I'd say the, the files, my little needle files that I use are, uh, and I just got some cheap ones. I would like some nice ones, but the cheap ones have been working for me just fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, I'm going to say I have, I have a lot of hammers from a lot of friends yeah. and people I respect. But there's one hammer I have that is my favorite hammer, and I'm I got it. I was actually with John Ariani, Sunset Forge. He made me a, a rounding hammer with a, one square face and one rounded face, and I uh, he made the hammer and I made the handle to what I like, which he he hates. I make him closer to the Hoffy style hammer handle. He hates my handles. It is my favorite hand tool I have. It's my favorite hammer, and it's because we worked on it together. And he made the hammer, and then I, he treated it and ground it and put it together. Uh, I, I, I will. Uh, my hammers are the one things in the shop. Like if my shop starts burning down, I'm grabbing all my hammers, I'm grabbing them all. Oh yeah. That's that's what's gonna. That's what I'm gonna John's do. the best. I got two of his, and uh, I've uh, the, nice. the the main one is a three. I think it's three and a half pound, um, and it's got an angled peen, which is pretty cool. That's right. Every once in a while, it gets a little funky, you know, trying to <laughs> for me. But I'm adapted to it. I love it. And uh, it's it's my go-to, and so yeah. You do a lot with John. You 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 and you you and John have collaborated on a few. Yeah, we've done a few things. He put he put some Damascus in a in an edge of a couple of hatchets he made. He did a great job with it, and he's messed around with some some of my material for some I think a couple like a friction folder or something. So he's been it's been real fun working with him. I like that. I like that combination you guys have, especially with that axe. I, that hatchet, those hatchets that he makes are so beautiful. They're awesome. And um, that was a real nice uh, collaboration between the two of you. I really like, enjoyed that very much. I hope you guys do yeah, it again. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like an idiot now. I wish I had said hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I spend so much time forging. Yeah. You know what? You know what? You save my bacon. Yeah. Like, we don't all have to say the same thing. Don't forget handle brooch. I mean, that's that would be my next thing. Like, I, I didn't have a handle brooch. I was using a, a sawzall blade and all kinds of ridiculous stuff and, like, wrestling a drill bit, you know, trying to wrench it around and break the webbing. And uh, I got this. I got these handle brooches, and they're just a wonderful thing, you know. I'm surprised you haven't made a handle brooch. Uh, Josh, <laughs> Damascus. I feel like that would be, like... Damascus you could do like a light because you're such a sculptor. I could see you, like, just a sculptor. I could see the handle being like a light bulb. <laughs> that, that's a great you idea, know? actually. I'm, when it comes to tools, I just like to buy them. I, I could make them, but I just want to do the work. You know, I want to. I feel yeah. the same way. I never got into. I never. When I first started being a blacksmith, I never. I only made tongs because I felt like it was a great introduction, yeah. a great way to make stuff. But I, I didn't care about the things. Yeah. I was just like, who cares? I, I had a Hoffy hammer, and that was all I yeah. needed. And now, you know, now I've kind of enjoyed the tool making as, as, as I've gotten. I never say never, and I said that on Toby's podcast, but I never say. Don't worry about Toby's. I ain't giving him enough credit. You gotta listen to Toby's. Joshua Prince's interview on Toby's very, very good. You don't have to keep mentioning I've always said I'm never going to do this. Job. I'm never going to make that. I'm never going to make a hammer. I'm sure I will, you know. Yeah. 
right, what's next? All right, uh, this next one is from Michael Ward. He says, I know ladder, twist, and random are basic and easily done with just a hammer. What uncommon Damascus patterns can you do by hand without a press or power hammer? Uh, and then uh, Ryan Chris also adds, what is the easiest and best way to start simple Damascus? Josh, what do you what do you think about some easier yeah. patterns that you can do without? What pops to mind immediately for me was accordion, an accordion cut. Oh yeah, sure. It's the easiest way if you're if you don't want to try to you know make mosaic tile and you know weld it together and go especially by hand. It's the easiest way to get the end grain onto the side of the blade. So accordion is like a ladder, except instead of uh, uh, alternating cuts if you will which even with a ladder you got to ease you got to ease the top you got to ease around the bottom otherwise you'll end up with some nasty cold shuts but with the accordion it's like a v right you might just just alternating v's that are removed so you can cut them in if you're pretty adept with an angle grinder you can cut them in with a thin angle grinder blade um, that's how i would probably do it um, and then you get your accordion cut in there alternating v's removed from from opposite sides similar to a ladder and then you should be able to hammer that right into a, into a blade, but you're going to lose a tremendous amount of material. Yeah. I don't know, probably 40%, something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, one I would add is like a raindrop pattern. So you can use yeah. uh, a, a drill bit and, um, and drill a series of holes, uh, either in a very organized fashion or even in an unorganized fashion. Um, but if you and you don't want to drill super deep these are kind of very superficial you don't want to get any kind of shoulders going because then um, you'll start getting cold shots actually um, when you go to flatten the material back out um, but just by cutting through what you're doing is you're cutting through those layers and then what's at the bottom of the hole ends up actually out on the surface and so you're seeing kind of a partial cross-section of that of the especially if it's a like a you know whatever a flat layer pattern uh something else i've done is i've you know a lot of people use an angle grinder to cut ladders in uh just straight ladders across from edge to edge across the width of the of the billet but i've actually i use them to uh cut chevrons yeah. uh, you can do kind of like a fan shape um to yeah that's cool um, there's all kinds of stuff you can do with cutting in patterns using the angle grinder and possibly even doing a combination of angle grinder and, and drill yeah. and drill press and stuff like that um, but then all of these i guess basic the basic idea is that these get you do this work you have to leave the material thick enough so that you have somewhere to go and forge it down afterwards if you do this at almost blade stock you're you're kicking yourself or you know whatever i don't know i can't think it phrases to this this fine but anyways don't worry i got a question uh, for you about the raindrop yeah so when you're doing the raindrop do you want because I've, I've heard that you don't want and i'm not i'm saying i've heard it that you don't want the cold shuts because you're having you don't want any 90 degrees or sharp edges would right. you when you're using the drill bit would you only want to go as far as the dome of the drill bit not go any farther yeah that, i mean that would be me that's so what you want exactly to bump you just want to bump it with the drill bit and that's about it so there's no yeah like, yeah, so there's no shoulder. Yeah, like you said, there's so there's no shoulder where it's catching basically the shaft of the drill a bit. It's only just yeah that conical or domed 
uh, point, and, and would, that's it. Would you? Would it be? Would, is that a safer way to do it than say if you just took a ball peen hammer and then just popped a lot of bumps yeah. in it? Yeah, actually, it is. You're guaranteed to see, like, to see or to cut through those layers because you are actually physically removing material. Right. You're scooping it out basically with that drill press. Uh, when you use a ball peen hammer, hammer uh, it does create some randomness, um, but it. Um, it, it's not as reliable necessarily. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, if you, the texturing, like the texturing technique, so ball peen and then grind, grind it all flat again. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you'd have to deal with what you're hitting against, right? If you're hitting it against your anvil and the ball peen on one side, then you flip it over and you kind of do the other. You're kind of working against yourself. You're a fighting bit. yourself. Yeah. yeah. Unless right. you use the fuller, and then you, now you're creating a problem where you might have them intersect. Um, depending on how thick your stock is, and I, I think with the with the uh, raindrop, it, it'd be unusual. But you don't kind of want to avoid having any deep um, those puddles lining up on either side of the stock. <clears throat> yeah, I think that, that goes without saying. The next que- the next question comes from Kurt Fisk. Hey guys, Reco mentioned dry welding. Could we hear more about this? Thanks. And then John Lewis adds. When making Damascus, uh, what's uh, to, yeah, yeah, this writing is unbelievable. When making Damascus, are the best, most consistent welds achieved with flux, kerosene soak, oil, or dry uh, well machine uh, tight seams? So basically, these guys want to know. And he did a fine, you did a fine job. You did a fine job, uh, John Lewis. I just read it poorly. Um, so talk about your uh, the, the welding process in regards to what's dry welding. What's kerosene? And I know we've covered this before, but I'd like to hear Josh, because Josh does so much with Damascus. I'd like to hear his take, too. What do you sure. think, Josh, do you want to, do you want to start? Um, yeah, sure. I, don't, the guest. I like a little kerosene. I, I, put a little, I dunk my billets in kerosene before I go into the forge. I don't know if there's a, you know, I understand. My understanding of it is that if, uh, the soot layer that is created when the kerosene burns off in the forge creates a protection from scale formation which would inhibit the weld so i do it as insurance and, and kerosene's cheap and it, i got a paint can full of it just make sure you don't drop anything you know make sure you don't leave it open after you're done using it in case you fumble your billet <laughs> turn into the human torch why <laughs> why? Oh, <okay. laughs> why? <laughs> why yeah and please don't mistake this don't put a hot billet into the kerosene because uh, i had that question one time yeah always let it what let it cool down before you did yeah. that. <laughs> so I like a little kerosene and uh, and then I go in um, and 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 get it you know reasonably warm and kind of get everything close together. So that's how I use it. I've, I've messed around with the WD forty. I I try not to use flux because it destroys my forge, but I find myself in a yeah. few occasions like in panic mode, like dumping flux all over the thing instead of just stopping <laughs> and grinding that writing those cracks out or like coming up with another game plan so i'll admit i do use yeah. flux in emergencies and it you know anyway that's 100 yeah. percent. yeah flux is my emergency backup <laughs> uh in case there's a there's just a little bit of something funky happening um but otherwise uh i i i do dry and what that means is it just means absolutely nothing it's all about the steel prep um something i've been doing for a long time now uh is grinding my billets instead of using, I used to use an angle grinder, but now I grind my billets on my grinder. 
Um, and that way I know it's flat mm. from edge to edge or side to side uh, across the face that will then be welded back together. Um, and one of the things that John Lewis is asking about is, you know, do you just rely on well-machined tight seams? You know, you can get really crazy and take it to super high finish. Um, and if that's what you want to do, that that's going to work great because uh, the cleaner the, the surface before it welds, the easier it's going to weld mm -hmm. together. Uh, and especially the flatter. Um, I don't get too crazy. I, I actually, I grind at like 36 grit. Mm -hmm. um, I grind my billet and and then uh, cut it and stack it back together. And I just TIG the ends, especially if I'm doing like a restack for a layer count. Say I started with like 25 layers in my first um, my first round of welding and now I've ground out and cleaned up my billet. Um, then I'll, uh, when I stack them back together, I, I, you know, I'm not welding down the seams. I just tack the ends together. It's, it, for me, it's more about um, soak time. Um, and I know a lot of people, especially when they're making Damascus, they're really concerned about burning the carbon out of their steel um, and, and bringing that carbon content down. Um, but that's, the, the carbon doesn't necessarily, it doesn't really actually move that fast. So you got time um, to let thing to give things a little bit of extra time. Um, and part of it, again, this is getting into science that I'm not, uh, like chemistry stuff that I'm not that great at. Um, but as it's been explained to me before, what's happening is uh, as that billet is coming up to heat in between those layers, um, what you uh, it, there there's a, a certain level of oxide that's developing. Um, but as that carbon starts to uh, or as that steel comes up to temperature and that carbon starts moving around within that steel, it does move up to the surface and kind of starts to quote unquote burn out. Um, but what happens is as that carbon reaches the surface, so on the surface you have this iron oxide, so it's, you know, it's iron and oxygen basically uh, together on the outside of that steel. When the carbon reaches the surface, it's grabbing onto some of that oxygen and, and then it's dispersing, it's leaving from between the layers and it gets to a point where it's, it's creating a, a positive pressure so that oxygen is no longer getting in between those layers. Um, and then once you've, and that's where a good soak comes in. And so when I'm welding my billets up, I, I let the whole billet come up to a solid welding temperature, and then I let it soak for at least like a solid five to ten minutes, depending on how much effort I put into um, cleaning up those surfaces, uh, those mating surfaces mm -hmm. of the billet. Um, and you know, if you are using flux and you see those bubbles happening on the surface, what's happening, you're seeing that carbon oxygen, you're seeing that action actually make its way out. And as it's passing through that layer of flux, that liquefied flux is creating those bubbles. And, um, and, and you can actually even also see it on, uh, you know, on the flat, on the outside of the billet is too, on the top and bottom surfaces, if there's flux on it. And so what that's doing, it's actually self cleaning in a way, but you have to give it time to do that. And it seems really scary. And I know, it, I know because that's how I felt when I first started doing it. Uh, it was terrifying because all I could think is, oh my God, there's not going to be any carbon left when I'm done with this. And it's going to be a fucking butter knife when I'm done. But that's not the case. It's never been the case ever. Um, so, yeah. but again, I'm not a chemist. I don't, I, I don't know if I explain that exactly right, but 
from what I've understand and what I've been told, that is what is happening at, on the surface of that material uh, when you're doing the dry weld. And the flux, more than anything, it's, it's creating a, uh, a kind of a sense of security. Um, and and also like realistically like there it, it because it is a layer on the outside of the steel it is preventing oxygen from getting to the surface of the steel but nonetheless carbon obviously because of the bubbling carbon is still making its way to the surface and floating away um and yeah, so flux is definitely not magic the, you know yeah it's definitely not it's not fucking it's not magic <laughs> no it, so it's definitely not magic uh, but, yeah, it makes it a mess but yeah. again, great visual yeah, though. I definitely keep yeah. flexing. Your description gives yeah. me such a vivid visual of what's happening, and I think anybody hearing that would, would get it. It makes total sense. Um, the only other thing I would add, if I could, is, um, yeah. uh, and I think I learned, I got this from you, is depending on what level of welding, what step of welding I'm at, I'll take greater care with more weld, more tack welds or, or trying to exclude more oxygen versus, you know, if I'm on the yeah. original stack, I'm not too worried about it, you know, the, the restack and so on. But when I get closer to where I'm getting to the mosaic, then I'm way more careful with cleanup and getting everything to mate um, really tightly. And then maybe even doing the whole TIG wrap. Um, yeah. And uh, I feel like it, it maybe maybe it's more related to soak time than anything, but I feel like if if uh, if the stack is bigger and my compression is greater, so if I'm going from like four inches and I'm going to compress down to two inches, I'm way less concerned with 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 worrying about you know anything I see on the surface as appearing sure. to be a, an open seam and then going crazy and putting flux on. I don't worry about it. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm yeah. with you there. Well, no, and that's perfect. And, and actually, to build on top of that, so what you were saying is, you know, as you get closer to your finished uh, tiles, uh, or even the tile welding, you know, you're you're doing full-on TIG wraps. Um, I I've what have I started doing? I, I I at the towards the end, I'll I'll TIG down the edge, but I'll leave the ends just like a little like just a little like vent basically open. Um, to, to allow some, not that it's going to build up an incredible pressure and like the bill is going to blow apart or anything like that. No, it's just in case there is something in there that gives something for it to, some, somewhere for that to escape. But also, if you are doing uh, a full on TIG wrap uh, or, 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 yeah, wrapping it up uh, with TIGing all the seams and everything, you don't necessarily need to let it soak for as long because you have less of that oxygen getting in in the first place as the billet is coming up to temperature um so you know probably a two to five minute soak is probably more of what i would do for a a, a billet that has been wrapped in tig or mostly wrapped in tig um and you can you know if you spend more time on the front end you spend less time on the on the back end when it comes to initial welding and you can get under the press or hammer sooner um but Ultimately, we're talking about just a few minutes. <laughs> so I think more than anything, what's important is just giving things the time that they need. I know when I did that class with mm -hmm. you, uh, Josh, that last weld I did, I, I, it was, I don't even remember how many pieces. I think 16, it was like 16 pieces yeah, in that. at least. Yeah. And all I did was I I'd only tack welded the ends. Yep. And, you know, the bars weren't even perfectly put together, but I just gave it time. I massaged it under the hammer, and that fucking yeah. thing came out solid. Yeah. It was and, probably like five, five inches by five inches by, maybe it was like a five cube, you know, like something like yeah. that visually, I remember, yeah, it came out awesome. Yeah. 
So it's 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 about time, time yeah. and heat. Let it do its thing, what it wants to do. It wants to clean out those surfaces. You just got to give it the time to do it. Um, but that's that's my hot take on dry weather. And, and then there's the jelly roll. <laughs> oh yeah, the jelly roll. Jelly roll blows Defies me away. Defies all reason, all logic, but somehow yep. works sometimes. Well, it's that same thing. Yeah. It's the soak. Of, right? It's what it is. Yeah. It's the soak, and and you have like ultimately you have flux, or sorry, not flux, scale in between no, uh, the you coils. Yeah. But what's happening is that carbon is again, it's it's making its way to the surface. It's consuming that oxygen that is comprising that iron oxide, leaving behind just iron. That's right. Um, and so it's giving it time to do that, to clean itself in that way, and it welds up just fine and, and seamlessly too. Which is, I've watched Peter do it a bunch of times. I've seen <laughs> your stuff. It's incredibly clean, and it just does not. It make does sense. not even. De- you don't but even it, get decarb. You don't even get that little decarb ghost in there. Right. Uh, well, and that, that, again, comes down to time and temperature. And it, you see those ghost lines when a steel has uh, it's been welded up, but it didn't necessarily get the time it needed to kind of re-regulate and evenly disperse uh, the carbon throughout the material. And so when, you, when it doesn't get that chance, that's when you see those yeah. ghost lines. Absolutely. Um, yeah. that was a deep dive right there next question comes from if you're am i interrupting no you're good all right right. so next question comes from tim landini what's the best grit to finish at before etching when you're making damascus is it high polish better or stopping at 800 or thousand give better results you want you want to start, Josh? I I'm not the expert on this. I can just say what I do, which is satisfactory for me. But I know that there's better, probably better ways. But I usually go to 800. <clears throat> Sometimes I stop at 400. Um, and it depends again on the pattern. You know how tight how tightly dent how tightly packed the, the lines are. But for me, four, you know yeah. 800 is as far as I usually take it. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. The scratch pattern reflecting the density of the lines or the pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is actually on the steel. I think that's a smart move. Um, but I usually, I, I also take it, my stuff up to 800. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting because when you're hand sanding, like, obviously everybody <laughs> fucking hates hand sanding. But once you get past 220, like 220 is yeah. the bear. 400s is a little easier, but any basically anything after that's pretty damn yeah. easy. It's not going to take you much longer. Again, we're just talking about a few minutes, really, on at each grit, and you're up. To, you can get up to a thousand pretty damn quick after you finish yeah. four hundred. It's really surprising, but um, I don't think it has to be crazy though. Um, you know, I th- I think eight hundred's plenty good. Um, you can get some really nice satin poles at eight hundred. I've actually had pro- I did some uh, some um, pommel nut, and I spun it on a. I spun mm-hmm. it on. I don't have it. I don't have a lathe, but I spun it on my drill and I used a uh, high grit. Actually, I used the normal grit 800, but it ended up so polished that I had problems with the edge. I, sure. ended, I ended up having to well, edge longer, oh, which was, seemed to solve it. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, and something to add too is depending on your backing. So if you have a hard metal backing versus mm-hmm. uh, like a dense rubber gasket or even That's leather or, or something else as a backing, that will even just with the same grit yeah. if you were doing a 800 it creates a different scratch pattern 
on it, and it will the softer it is basically on the backing, the it, the more it will satin out. Yeah, that's um, what you want. I think so, you want that satin. Yeah. yeah, and while we're talking about hand sanding and sandpaper, let me talk to you about Rhino Wet, <laughs> made by Indasa USA. Uh, they are an awesome sponsor of our show, and we're so thankful to have them because they make the best hand sanding paper. Um, that I think any knife maker can really ask for. Um, and if you go to Texas Ferry Supply, you can save, um, what is it, 10%, 15%? I always get that mixed up. 10% with Knife Talk 10 um, at Texas Ferry Supply. And while you're there, you can also get whatever other uh, knife making supplies you can get there, as well as forging supply. I mean, they even have their own anvils that they're having made. Um, but Indasa is an awesome sandpaper, and we're really glad to have them as a sponsor. And... That's I got my brooch from That's, Texas. I don't know what else to yeah, say I got about my it. Brooches from from Texas Ferrier Supply. Yeah. Perfect. Those are good yeah. dudes. The guys at Texas Ferrier Supply are good dudes, and they have all sorts of stuff. Like uh, people ask me all the time, uh, how I dye my epoxy. They sell epoxy dye. So if you're using two part epoxy, somebody. Like <laughs> 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 they, they, they Hold on, let me finish. All right, there we go. I'm making noise. You're making noise the whole time. You're popping tops too. We're talking about we're talking about Texas Fair Supply. Get yourself some. Get yourself some Rhino Wet Texas Fair Supply. Knife Talk 10. Get yourself some epoxy dye, and there you are. Jeff, you're just jealous. He's living a life of luxury. I know. And you're it, talking about sandpaper. Luxury is, his, his luxury is driving my ears crazy. <laughs> squeaky chair. I mean, squeaky chair. He's, the, when you, see, you know what the funny thing is? Is when you said the, the Kool-Aid man, it's literally been like the Kool-Aid man. There were like, you were, you were running laps upstairs or something, something like that. There were all sorts of things going on. Well, you know what it is? I'm talking, but my arm, I'm gesturing. I have a way of talking with my hands, so I'm talking and I'm right. moving my arms around. Yeah. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm glad you uh, listen. You were the number one draft pick for the, for when Craig had a oh, band, so I'm thrilled that you. I'm thrilled that you got here. And a lot of the listeners said you got to get. Oh, that's pretty cool. And I'm really wow. happy. Good group. Um, why don't we hit another question and then we'll see where we're at. Um, yeah. What you pick one? Pick one. Here. I'll just. I, I just was scrolling through. I'll start. Let's see. Uh. We got one. Oh, Jesus, that's a book. We're going to skip that one. <laughs> All right, Derek Melton says, hey, hey cuties, uh, if each of you had the ability to set up three separate belt grinders, what attachments would you keep in each one and why? That's a good mm. question. I like that. Three belt grinders. They're set up three different ways. What would you do? Josh, you want to start? Uh, yeah, I'd have a small wheel attachment on one of them for sure. Uh, yeah. Other than that, obviously the flat. Um I don't know about slack. I don't do a whole lot of slack, but with I'm starting to get more into slack, slack belt. Uh, actually, I know exactly. The third one would so I'd have a small wheel, hard platen, and then a, a leatherback platen, or a slack belt. Somehow I could quickly move between those two. Uh, but like I was saying, so slack belt I've been doing a little bit more and a little bit more with a soft backer for handles and for steel. Uh, and I've kind of been messed around with these flexible belts, um, as particularly with the, with the slack belt. Uh, I did some all-steel handles, and uh, that was a real, a real nice to have. A, I think it was a J-Flex, or it was one of the really flexible belts on the, with no platen, and I was able to go right up against it and run it right up into all the curves, and it would, actually took quite a bit of bend to where I was almost pushing sideways against it. 
Um, so that surprised sure. me, and I, that kind of opened some doors, you know, opened my mind up to different ways of doing things. Absolutely. Yeah. So what would you do, Mareka? What would be your three arm attachments? Um, I would have a, a slack slash flat platen set up. Uh, I would have, especially if I'm if it's a finish grinding day, uh, I would have a hollow set up uh, for my for my uh, like a, a radius platen set up uh, because I do a lot of back and forth between the flat or sorry between the convex and between the uh, and, and the hollow grind and it's that's the biggest problem I have one grinder right now and all the, the biggest problem is I'm changing out the tool arms constantly um, so I'd have one of each of those um, I think. You know, I, I used to use small wheel a lot, but I I've actually gotten away from using small wheel, and using just the uh, the edge of my platen. I have uh, on my on my platen I've actually my flat platen I've ground in a cutback angle at at about a 45 degree angle or so, and so that allows me, like Josh was just saying, to bend belts around the edge of the platen really mm -hmm. nicely and to get into small areas, um, even actually with like my 120. Uh, like an X weight belt or Y weight belt, um, so I, I wouldn't need the small wheel. Yeah, it would probably be my rotary platen, flat platen, and a radius platen set up. Jeff, well, do you want to know what I have? Jeff has like twenty grinders. I know it. <laughs> I, well, you guys have already said what I want. I have a flat platen. I, I, I like a, I like a small contact wheel, and then I have I like. I, let, I put some scotch bright on a, on a uh, I put, I take some tape, I'll scotch, I'll put a scotch bright pad on a platen, mm -hmm. so I can kind of have it, it has a little bit more give than a leather, like I can get a, it's just a little bit, it's kind of similar to, uh, uh, I don't know what the hell it's similar to, but I tape, I tape a scotch bright on a platen, and if I go slow, it's really, it helps me kind of like, uh, conform with the J-Wing. Oh, as a backer. Nice. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a backer, but it's a little bit thicker than like a leather back, so there's a little bit more. I can push a little bit more. Right. You know. Well, let's, we're gonna have to wrap this up, unfortunately. And yeah. Have to get going, yeah. but I just wanted I wanted to just say one thing. When we talk about people who are setting themselves apart, people who have created something that is beautiful and functional, but also creating a name for themselves, you have to put Joshua Prince in that mix because he has done it. He's used his experience as a knife maker, as a sculptor, and he's created something super special. And I am so glad you're in this world doing what you're doing. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I appreciate it. And thanks, Mareko. Not to yeah, mention, 100%. not to mention, you were one of the most generous guys. And when I first met you at Blade Show, you gave me wood, you gave me this, you gave wow. you, me, you actually, you saw me oh, making yeah. a Spanish tortilla and you sent me uh, uh, the, 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 one of the things I use every single week. And I think of you, uh, Topper, so flip it over. I use that awesome. all the time. You are super, super generous. And I'm thrilled that you're here. We're going to have to have you on again. And uh, we're going to figure something out. Um, but is there anything else you want to talk about or say? No, I mean, you know, I should just thank you, you for the kind words. That, and thank you, and uh, th thank you, Craig and, and Morocco, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been fun. Craig didn't have you. <laughs> Craig didn't have you on. Yeah. Craig, Craig had nothing to do with this. All, right. He's, all Craig is going to do here, all Craig is going to do is bitch about your audio. <laughs> and he's going to, under his, under his, and then, you know, 
you know, <laughs> you know, so, but that's, that's all right. it. That's, that's all Craig's going to be. That's all I got. I mean, it's been great. Yeah. Look forward to the next time. So everybody follow uh, Joshua Prince at, go ahead. Prince Works Forge. All Prince one word. Forge. All right. Go check him out. Go follow him. Uh, and thank you for coming, listening to the podcast, everybody. Go s- support our sponsors and do me a favor. Go on to iTunes, leave us a review, leave us some, it helps us because it makes us, it allows us to do more things. Thank you very much. Uh, on behalf of Craig Lockwood, who's, you know, who knows what the hell he's up to. Thank you for listening, and we're going to see you next week on Knife Talk. Is that how we end the show? No, he goes, oh, that's the end. Of, I don't know how he end, how, 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 how does he end the show? That's, that's the show. show. Oh, that's the show. Why don't you finish it off? You finish it off. Of course, I think that's a show. Oh, that's that's a show. That's a show. That's your. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was. I was. I was one of the callers that did a, a bad Darth Vader impression. What was oh. that? It was ages ago. When we were taking yeah, phone yeah. calls. I, I, I confess. I, I confess. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, so that's a show. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and we're going to see you next week. Bye-bye. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.